Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. As we come to the concluding verses of this chapter, we'll begin this morning looking with at verse 63 and following 63 through 71. And our text today, the focus turns from where we have been last week, of course, we considered Peter and the focus there upon his denial. And here the focus turns from Peter to Jesus. And here we see the suffering, some of the suffering that Jesus endures at the hands of evil men. Now, Luke, in his brevity, does not make a clear delineation of the of the Jewish hearings that Jesus goes through. And in fact, it seems that there were actually three distinct Jewish hearings before he ever approached the the hearings before Pilate. The first one was right upon his arrest when he was there taken before Annas. Annas was the former high priest, the father-in-law of the high priest, but still a man who, who wielded a great deal of influence and power among the Jewish leaders there. So it's actually in John chapter 18 that we have the account that Jesus was first taken to Annas, not because he was the high priest, but certainly because of the influence that he had. But second, the second hearing that Jesus endured was the trial before Caiaphas, the ruling high priest. There he is, meets with the Sanhedrin, and that's in verses 63 and 65 of our text here today. And then the third hearing, the Jewish hearing that Jesus went through was that which occurred at daylight. There, even in our text here in verse 66, when it was day. And that was in an attempt to put some sense of legality in what had so far been an illegal trial. The fact that they were meeting Jesus in these night sessions trying to to find some type of a charge that would stick against Him. And so having believed that they have found that, They're ready by daylight to meet with all of the Sanhedrin for the third hearing. Now, some of the particulars that we find in verses 67 and following, some of the words that are spoken here and applied to to Jesus, they seem to have actually occurred during the night hearings. Now, Luke is not contradicting what we find in the other gospel accounts, Luke just simply is not as clear in distinguishing one from the other. And Luke, we can rest assured, he writes his account of the life of Jesus knowing that the precise details and the accounts have already been recorded likely by Matthew and Mark. And so he's not going in to contradict. It's just that Luke does not come in with the clarity of saying this is exactly when this took place. And we've seen this so many times through Luke's gospel. He's not so concerned about a proper chronology of this is the exact order of events. But he conveys the appropriate message. And he would know that the 
that the details again were already written and recorded in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. So this is not an issue of great difficulty to resolve and to maintain our understanding of the Scripture as being inerrant. Now there are some who would, who would raise the red flag. Well, look what he says here. This is, he says this takes place here. And Matthew and Mark say this takes place here. And we just say just quite simply, Luke's not trying to say in great detail this is exactly how it took place. But these things that he records did take place. And so as we come to our text today, we see the Spirit, both by word and by action, of those who are opposed to Jesus. So begin reading with me here in verses 63 and following. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him and beating Him. And they blindfolded Him and were asking Him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against Him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, as God's people, as you come to this text, and you come to the accounts of what we're going to be reading through, not only here, but in the coming weeks, of the suffering that Jesus Christ endured, we marvel. And we marvel from, from two positions. One is, we marvel that Jesus willingly submits Himself to such treatment. These men do not have the power to force this upon Christ. As he, as he is arrested, remember, as Peter takes the sword and Jesus says, put the sword away. Don't you know that I have the power to call thousands of angels to just appeal to the Father? And so we know that Jesus willingly submits Himself to this treatment. The second thing that we marvel at in reading it is this, and that is that men actually treated Him so. We marvel at that, that people can be so wicked. And we speak as those who have, have been transformed by the power of God that we have been given new hearts. We've been regenerated. And we love our Savior. We love this Jesus who gave Himself. 
And we marvel that anyone could treat this one whom we love and we know to be so dear for what he has done, that they could treat him this way. If there were any questions remaining regarding Jesus' claim and Jesus' revelation of who He was, who He is, they are removed here in this text altogether when in verse 69 He says, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I remember back when I was in college at Union University, Jackson, Tennessee, sitting in one of the the Bible classes, I don't remember which one it was in particular, but back in the late 70s, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and even on the state levels as well, in the Southern Baptist Convention was the beginning of the battle for the convention between the conservatives and the moderate liberals. Moderate and liberals. (laughs) And so there was the uprising, there was the the charge that was made from the conservatives against the liberals. But one of the comments from those who would identify himself as a moderate was something to the effect of Jesus never really identified himself as the Messiah. To which I remember another young man in class who was responding to the professor said, that sounds kind of liberal to me. You know, and how you can come to a text right here and make such an absurd statement is beyond me. He takes the prophetic and the messianic title of Son of Man, taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 and following. And he uses the word of being at the right hand, that phrase taken from a clear Messianic text, Psalm 110, verse 1. He takes those two things and he applies them without any equivocation, without any apology to himself. Simply saying... I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am God and I will return in glory and I will be at the right hand of the Father. And just in case they didn't get it. Verse 70, they asked. For the record, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Now, I don't know how you can get any more clear than that. Now, if true, if it is true that Jesus is the Son of God, If it is true that as He is the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power of God. If that statement is true, a statement of this 
magnitude cannot simply be ignored. I will give them this. They had that right. You cannot ignore this. But we're taking it from the standpoint of if it is true, if it is true, it cannot be simply ignored. If Jesus is the Son of God, that statement must be believed with all the implications of that. Or, this statement, even if it is true, must be rejected and denied with all of the consequences of that. If it's true, those are the only two options. You embrace it as truth or you reject the truth. If you embrace it as truth, there are implications. If you reject it as truth, there are consequences. So clearly, Jesus identifies Himself as the Messiah and He speaks of a future glorious coming. And there in Mark's account, which we read, He says, You will see... You will see the Son of Man. Guess who they're going to see? They're going to see the same person that they're sitting before, that's sitting before them and they're condemning to death. They're going to see Him again. So He says, you'll see it. So Jesus speaks of such a glorious coming. In a lot of our text here, it's wise to consider the risk of opposing Him. As these in our text do. So I entitled the message this morning, To Those Who Dare Oppose Their God. To those who dare oppose their God. Well, first the thing that we see, if you're going to oppose God, if you're going to oppose his Christ, first thing you're going to see is that your offenses are wicked. Your offenses against your God are wicked. Now listen, it's one thing. It's one thing to reject most messianic and divine claims that come around the pike every now and then, isn't it? Those should be and must be rejected because Quite simply, they're not true. But aren't there many of those even show up every now and then as the claimed Christ, as the claimed Messiah? It's one thing to reject those, which we should. It's another thing to dismiss, to dismiss the claims of Jesus Christ. That is a whole different story. And why is that? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy over 300 times. Over 300 Old Testament references in the Old Testament Scripture that are clear. That's not to mention the ones that we could find that we would say, well, that's not very clear, but because somebody in the New Testament references it, it has to be so. Jesus says, John chapter 5, turn with me very quickly, John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
It is these is what? It is the scriptures. It is the scriptures that testify about me. Then back in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse... Nope, I'm sorry, not yet. Look at Luke 24. I'm on the wrong line. Luke 24. Of course, we've referenced this before. Luke 24, 44. Jesus, He spoke to them, to His disciples. These are My words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, with all that all things which are written about Me, about Me, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the Old Testament Scriptures, they speak of Him. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures. Second, we see the mighty and the miraculous works of Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 36. You were just there in John. Go back. John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the things that Jesus is doing are a testimony of who He is. And now, now look to John, uh, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Luke chapter 7, verse 22. You remember, this is when John's deputation is sent. John has been in prison. Some of his disciples come and say, Are you the, the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for? Or do we look for another? And Jesus answered, verse 22, You go and report to John what you have seen and heard. And what he says, the blind receive their sight. What's he doing here? He's quoting Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And here it is. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Again, right out of the book of Isaiah. The things that Jesus is doing witness to him. And there are also those things which are testified from the Old Testament scriptures. The works that he does. Also, there were Jesus' own prior claims. Luke chapter 4. These are the things that we've studied just going through Luke's gospel. And this is not incidentally exhaustive. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 and following. Jesus beginning His public ministry. He goes to Galilee. He comes to Nazareth, verse 16, where He had been brought up. And as His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read... The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover sight of the blind, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has already identified Himself as the Messiah. Chapter 5 of Luke, verses 20 and following. Seeing their faith, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk. Then in verse 24, look what he says. But so that you may know the Son of Man Himself. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. They're right again. Only God can forgive sins. And he says to them, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralegal, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And then chapter 6. Verse 5. Saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who has instituted his day. He is, in fact, God himself. Chapter 12. Verse 8. I say to you, everyone who confesses me. Everyone who confesses me before men, before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. He who denies me before men will be denied, be denied before the angels of God. So he makes one's response to him the determining factor of whether or not someone will be in God's eternal kingdom. Then chapter 19, verse 37. And as we, as we spent time here some weeks ago, as he's coming into Jerusalem, approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a Messianic phrase from the Old Testament. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. <laughs> They're doing well. They're doing right. And he comes in in such a way as to leave no question in his or their minds what he's claiming. So to dismiss the claims of Jesus Christ is much more serious than just dismiss dismissing the claims of any who would rise up and claim to be Christ, claim to be God. Just yesterday on on the news of the man who's 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 been charged with murder, he says, I, I kill for God. I hear God speak. Well there's the clear contestant testimony regarding Jesus. The scriptures are fulfilled. His mighty works, his miraculous works testify of who he is. He has claimed and done things to clearly indicate who he is. The father's witness to him at his baptism. The voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. The father's voice again to him at the transfiguration. This is my son. Hear him. And then Jesus clear response here back in our text. As they ask him. Are you the Son of God? And he said to them, Yes, I am. There's his testimony. Very clear, very consistent. So, in light of that, consider then the wickedness of the sins of these who oppose God, of these who sin against God here. We see the mocking 
mocking their God. Beating him. Verses 63 and verse 64. Mark 14, 65. Tells that they're spitting upon their God. They're slapping their God in the face. They are in fact guilty of blaspheming is the word that that Luke here uses in summary in verse 65. They were saying many other things against him. Blaspheming. Charging him. Charging God Himself with blasphemy. And they are guilty of the very sin by doing so. Condemning God Himself as deserving of death. And then verse 67, just their absolute refusal to hear. You're the Christ, tell us. And He said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. If I ask a question that would force you to consider that I am the Messiah, you're not going to answer it because it would incriminate you. Not interested in truth. Not interested in righteousness. How great is the wickedness of those committed against God here. This is their response. Of those opposed to Christ. This is the response to one whom they should be worshiping. They should be praising Him. They should be offering glory to Him. This is the one to whom they owe their very life. The one to whom they owe the next breath. The one to whom they owe the strength to raise their arm and strike Him. How wicked... An offense is this. To dare to go in opposition against your God. How wicked are your offenses? How do you measure this? Well, the first thing we need to do as the people of God is we make sure that we grasp the wickedness of our own offenses. We're not here the first thing to do, point fingers. To grasp the wickedness of our offenses against God. To grasp the, 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 the wickedness of our sin before we were converted. When we walked in darkness, when we walked in our own ways, living as though we were our own God, our own boss, with an indifference toward God. Lives marked by sin, sin, sin. Lives marked by rebellion. Lives marked by defiance against Him. Lives marked by some like me growing up in a church marked by hypocrisy. And it's not over, is it? When God, in His grace, we were born again by the Spirit of God. It's one thing to to walk in our sins when we walk and we live in such darkness, isn't it? But now when we sin, we sin and we walk in such light. How do you how do you measure the wickedness of our sins? What light do we sin against now? See the heart of man. Heart of man is turned against God. 
And with regeneration, our hearts are turned toward God, but there is still the, the reality of that principle of indwelling sin. And it's strong, isn't it? How wicked, how vile are our offenses against our holy God and against our Father, against our Savior who has redeemed us. But at the same time, there is the reality of those outside Christ who continue to walk in their sin, who continue to live lives that are absolutely offensive against God. And let me just say, folks, we need to be bold. We need to be compassionate. I know it's not the politically correct thing to tell people that they're dying in their sins. I understand that. But it's the gospel. It's what brings men from darkness to light. And you can word it any way you want to word it, but make sure they get this, that they are walking on a life that is offensive against God. And it's wicked And that the wrath of God awaits them if they do not repent. We need to be bold and compassionate in proclaiming the gospel. And part of that gospel message is sin. But thankfully part of that message is grace. Oh, that men might see their, see their sins or they might experience His grace. How great are men's sin, but how great also, because of their sin, is their need of Christ and of His forgiveness. If I might just reference again, last Saturday as Beth and I went to Greenville for the memorial service for, for Joseph Carroll. One of the things that was said about him by one of the, the speakers said that, that Joseph Carroll lived with the reality of heaven and hell ever before him. That he preached, and quoting from another writer, but he preached as a dying man to dying men. Folks, people without Christ go to hell. They go to hell. And let them go. Let them go only having heard our pleas to them. Only having them see our eyes weep for them. God forgive us the indifference that we have toward people that we say we love and we do nothing of sharing the gospel. Oh, my my life be a witness. That's not enough. They need to hear the words. 
Your life is no more sufficient to bring someone to a saving knowledge than creation itself. It's good. And you can look out in creation and see God's general revelation of Himself, but you're not coming to Christ. And the life of a life transformed is good, but it's not enough. People need to see that the transformation is of Christ. That's the gospel. People need to have pointed out to them that their offenses against God are wicked and that they will be held accountable. Second, to those who would oppose God, understand that the opportunity is waning. One of the implications of Jesus' words regarding this, this glorious return in verse 69. That opportunity does not last forever. In our text, we see this council, these men who have seen and are living with Jesus in his humiliation. Seeing Jesus in his apparent, at least the appearance of weakness. Seeing Jesus in his humanity. For those who are blind to his person. Rejecting him and rejecting his message. And each passing moment of continuing in their sin is an opportunity lost. It's nearer to the moment of complete Loss of opportunity. And that does come for every person. There comes a time when opportunity, the door of opportunity is closed. So here in the midst of their vile treatment of Christ, there is still opportunity for repentance. If any would simply humble himself before God, any acknowledge their sin and rebellion, the opportunity is there. And Jesus' assurance is this. On His return, it will be different. The redemption that is purchased in His humiliation, in the shedding of His blood, and even His death, that redemption is to be culminated in a glorious return. And with that day approaching, that day coming, the day of opportunity will end. Because when He comes in His glory, when He comes as described, seated at the right hand of the power of God, He comes to once and for all crush His enemies. It's a day coming when Jesus will be seen, as he told, as recorded in Mark's gospel. You shall see. You shall see. Sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Then, then opportunity is lost. No salvation when Christ returns. Only just retribution. For those who are guilty and continue to walk in the life of rejecting Him. 
let none think that Jesus delay. That just because Jesus hasn't come yet, his reason to deny his return altogether. Each passing day is another opportunity. Each passing day is another opportunity lost. Each day an opportunity to bow before Jesus. Each day of life an undeserved opportunity, undeserved opportunity to repent of sin. And even if he does not return in our lifetime, opportunity for you and for me, for any, is lost at death. Opportunity is waning. There's going to be a change. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to be seen as he's seen here. They're not going to be looking upon him and spitting in his face then. They're not be looking upon him and slapping him. They'll be looking upon him coming in all of his glory, coming as a conquering king to crush those who would rebel against him once and for all. So let us consider his delay. Let us consider each day of life as his continued mercies to us for outside Christ. And let us as the people of God call men to repentance and faith today. We can call them to repentance and faith now, but there is coming a day when it will be too late. Let's call them. Their opportunity, their opportunity is waning. And finally, we see that those who would oppose, who would oppose God, and who opposes Christ, the opposition is wasted. These enemies of Jesus, <clears throat> you can rest assured, they opposed him with all of their resources, didn't they? It had become a consuming passion for them. So much to them that they were willing to commit all types of atrocities to get this man. To be done with him once and for all. But again, Jesus' words both warn and assure he will return. You'll see it. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He will return gloriously. So for all of their efforts, for all of their hatred, for all of their evil deeds, their victory is short-lived. And even we understand by the words of Peter at Pentecost that they only accomplished his purposes, that which was predetermined by God through the hands of evil men. 
So their, their opposition is in fact a foolish waste of resources simply because when it's all said and done, Jesus wins. He wins. And if you're not with Him, you lose. And I can think of no greater waste of life. Don't waste your life. That's John Piper's book. <laughs> Don't waste your life by opposing God, by opposing His Christ. He's going to win. These men may relish in their apparent success. The words of warning are issued with clarity. He's coming back. He is seated on the right hand of God the Father. This same Jesus who's hated and maligned and falsely accused and despised and even murdered, He returns as the ultimate conqueror, restoring His moral rule over all men, executing justice, executing His just retribution against these very men here and all others who live in opposition to Him. Folks, what a waste. What a waste. It's a sound message for the contemporary church age, the contemporary age as well. If you haven't noticed, there are still plenty of people who mock God. Still plenty of people who hate Jesus by name. Just read where somebody referred to the Republican vice president nominee as a flat earth creationist. <laughs> a little bit of hyperbole there. She's not a flat earth person. But boy, people just look for the opportunities to, to bring accusation against Christians, against God's people, against God, against the Christ. For those who mock Jesus those who mock His church, those who mock His law, will see Him. And those energies of opposition and rebellion wasted. Brought to Nothing. The words of King Saul after he's encountered David on a couple of occasions and David has spared him. And the last of these occasions, just before he died, what's his life summary? King Saul's life summary. I've played the fool. Toy said. I've been a fool. Look back on my life. Here it is. Fool. To those who dare to live a life in opposition against God. Mark it down. If you have the opportunity to say before you die, it'll be this. I've lived the fool. And if not then, once you die, I've been a fool. 
So we call men to be reconciled to God today, to oppose God, to oppose His Christ. Absolute folly. He is God. He is sovereign. He rules and He reigns over all of His creation. Don't oppose Him. Don't waste your life. Turn to Him. Receive of His abundant mercies. Join those who joyously anticipate the day of Christ's return instead of dreading it. One may oppose God. One may oppose Christ. But it's only to their own destruction. And these were men who sat before God and They condemn themselves in their attempt to condemn Jesus. Look at verse 71. When they said, what further need do we have of testimony? That's a good question. What further need do you have of testimony? All that He has shown you, all that you have seen of Him, all that you have heard, all the light that's been afforded you being in the presence of Jesus Christ, what further need do you have of testimony? You don't need any more light. You just need to repent. And then, we have heard it ourselves from His own mouth. And because of that, so great is their condemnation. You've heard it yourselves. You're without excuse. So in their attempt to bring judgment and condemnation against Christ, by their very words, they've condemned themselves. We don't need more testimony. We've had enough. We've heard it ourselves. They heard the truth. And are held accountable for that, for that truth, which they rejected for all of eternity. If you walk in opposition against God, know the wickedness of your offenses. Just as clearly as we can turn to the Scriptures and read... Word by word, these are the specific nature of the offenses committed against Christ in these hearings. Rest assured that each of your sins are known and recorded by God. Rest assured of that. And though men may never see them, men may never read them, they stand glaring before the eyes of God. And you you give an account Consider the opportunity is waning. Today is the day for people. It's not tomorrow. It's not when they're ready. It's when they hear the gospel. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And rest assured that to oppose God is to absolutely waste your life. He wins. And if you're not His, you lose. Let's pray. Father, we know there be any here today who would be anything other than 
the enemy of God. It's only because of your grace. And we have to confess that we all were once there. While we were your enemies, Christ died for us. And Lord, we come as your people. And Lord, we confess that we have, we have sinned wickedly against you. Lord, even as your people, we've sinned against so much light, sinned against truth. Lord, forgive us. Lord, if there be any here today who would still be counted an enemy of God, I ask, Father, for you to work mercifully, graciously in their hearts. Oh, Lord, to see how wicked are their offenses and that they shall give an account that they cannot undo these things. They cannot minimize these things. Lord, help them to see that today is the day of opportunity. Today is the day to call upon the Lord to be saved. Thank you for the assurance for those who call upon Christ. He will in no wise turn away. And Lord, help them to see that there is a far superior way to live your life than by wasting it. That to live a life purposely, deliberately, for the glory of God. And to experience your power to do so. And Lord, as we take this message into the world in which we live, Lord, help us to be wise. But Lord, help us to be bold. That just as our sins against you for which we deserve a Christless eternity were great. So are the sins of others. And except they repent, they will perish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.